The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So we're going to start back in in Nehemiah chapter 13. As I said, chapters 12, or 11 and 12 and, uh, are, are, are for you to study on your own. We're going to dig into beginning in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 13. So let's start out by reading verses 4 through 9. Now before this, Elishib the priest, who was appointed over the cab chambers excuse me, of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and contrib- contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and frankincense. So Nehemiah was the man, if you remember, he was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes that had come on mission and by direction of God to rebuild the wall and set into motion certain reforms for the people of Israel. And so time goes by and he returns back to King Artaxerxes some 800 miles away. He is a long way away from Jerusalem. Having instituted all these reforms, worship's installed, the walls are rebuilt, this is the way we're to live, here's the law, do you covenant? Yes, we covenant, everything is restored. He goes back to Artaxerxes 800 miles away and then after some time he asks the king for leave to go check and see how things are doing. Well, when he comes back, he finds that many of the reforms he put in place um, are fragile at best, if not gone completely. And in particular, we see this man, Tobiah. Tobiah, um, if you remember from Nehemiah chapter 6, was a man who had hired a a prophetic man, a a man, a, a prophet, if you will, a false prophet, to come and prophesy to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you're going to die in this mission that you're doing. You need to close up shop and head back. This is going to fail miserably and you're going to lose your life in this program. Just go back. Not because it was true, but because he was trying to discourage Nehemiah from doing this work that God had given him. So Tobiah is against the work of God from the very beginning. And Nehemiah now comes back and they've set up a chamber, a.k.a. bedroom, an apartment. Dude has a studio apartment in the house of God. Tobiah himself has a studio apartment in the house of God. So what we're going to be talking about here is drift in this particular text. We're going to see as we walk through this book four ways in which all Christians have a tendency to drift away from what God has desired for us. And this is the the idea. Nehemiah set reforms into motion, reinstituted worship, reinstituted the law, left, comes back, and what he's found is that the people have drifted away from what's been instituted. We're going to see four major ones as we go through the text. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes, I hope you do. The first one is this. We all have a tendency over a period of time to relax in seriousness with regards to holiness. 
we all have a tendency over a period of time, a proclivity might be a better way of saying it, to relax in our seriousness towards holiness over time. This natural inclination within us desires, if, if it's unchecked, if things are just left to themselves, what is the natural drift that we as believers have? What's our natural trajectory? It is naturally going to be away from an emphasis on holiness. Um, we tend to end up just making room in our lives for things other than God, and those things tend to pull over time or at least create enough space that allow us over time to drift. And, and I don't necessarily mean big things. The, the average Christian doesn't drift away from God because they suddenly picked up a meth addiction. Um, the average person that falls with regards to things like um, affairs or, or false doctrine or whatever doesn't wake up one day and say, this is what I have decided to do. There is a period of drift and small concessions that make room um, and relax them with regards to their proclivity towards holiness are the things that allow that to happen. It's rarely things like drugs. It's usually things that are morally neutral but begin to separate us or dull our seriousness towards holiness of God. And, and I can tell you this, man, from 15 years of pastoral ministry but a lifetime of being in the church now, I've seen this happen so many times. I've experienced it myself. But, but I've seen it myself so many times where there are people who one year or one day are here in the church and they are on fire, dedicated, worshiping, serving everywhere they can, never miss a Sunday. And then you fast forward two years, three years, four years, and you don't even see them again. And, and I don't mean just like well, they're going to a different church now. I'm talking about people that have just drifted away from God completely. And that doesn't happen instantly. There's drift. It might start off with, your, your kids hit a certain age, and now you've got some ball games that they're involved in, and so you miss a few Sundays, uh, and then, then someone gets sick, and then just things can come up in life that can cause you to drift further and further apart, and to the point that you end up completely away from who you were to begin with. And in many cases, especially people that have fallen into sin and moral failures, a lot of times guys get to a place, or women get to a place where they're like, I don't even know how I got here. Just small little drifts that lead to the point that we're suddenly completely lax on our call to, to holiness. I mean, how in the world does this group of people, after reinstituting God's law, reinstituting God's covenant, reinstituting God's word, worship, rebuilding the walls, the temple, seeing all these things come into place in the face of opposition that they beat back, including Tobias... Next thing you know, he comes back. Tobias has a bedroom in the house of God, a man who's been opposed to God's word from the very beginning. This happens. And this doesn't just happen once in a while to some people. You can look through the history of the church, and you see examples of this that have happened over and over and over. Think of Martin Luther, the great theologian who was one of the leaders in Germany of the church that walked away from the Catholic church and he hangs those resolutions on the wall and says, this is not right. It is grace by faith, not by works. And he leads the Reformation. We as the part of the Protestant community exist because of some of the moves that he made. And yet over time in Germany itself, they begin to use his very teachings and some of his very precepts distort them, turn them around to the point that Hitler is then using the church in Germany to eradicate 10 million Jews, using the church as a vehicle by which to do it. How does that happen? Small little 
steps. Drift. A little move here. A little move here. Suddenly we're not so serious about holiness. There's other things. Maybe our own personal comfort, our own interest, whatever the case may be, happens all the time. You can see it in the history of the church in England to this day. The church in England, um, though there are some revivals going on, it's weak. And it's happening in America. We can't argue. In many cases. We're seeing churches and denominations that would have been bastions for biblical truth now going, ah, I don't, we don't really need to talk about this anymore. And we're going we're gonna to change this. And you look at them and go, what happened to you? Drift. And one of the things that the church has a proclivity to do if they're not careful is you will drift away from a seriousness about God's call to holiness. This has happened throughout Christian history. Now, God has been gracious to us. And he's given us tools. He's given us his holy word, which we talked about just a minute ago, that gives us specifically God's direction, God's will, God's plan, his desires for us. He's given us his Holy Spirit, which empowers us, but also convicts us of sin. And according to Corinthians 3.18, is the very vessel by which we are changed from glory to glory into the image of God. So, So we have the Holy Spirit. We have God's word. We have community, Christian community. Um, where the intent behind Christian community is that you have people in your life who are watching out for your blind spots. Because everyone in this room, me and everyone in this room, we have blind spots, we just don't see them. Which is why they're called blind spots, right? We don't see them. And so to have someone in your life that can come up to you and say, dude, you don't see this. But I feel like I see that. I feel like you're drifting, man. You used to be on fire, you used to, and I'm seeing these things, and what's going on to have that person? Now, that rarely goes well at first. I mean, typically those discussions are met with what? Justification, explanations, anger, but for the person who genuinely desires to follow God, the hope is that as the Spirit convicts them, and God's community comes, and then God's Word is there, they're going to say, you know what? He's right. That was uncomfortable, and that was painful, but he's right, and that repentance would occur. That is a gift. And so those are all tethers to protect us from drift. They're to keep us from falling off the edge in the same way that ropes on a cliff would keep you from slipping over the edge to your own demise. God has given us tethers for his protection. So, but those are tethers that help us understand what drift is. But one thing I think it's important to point out that you're going to see with Nehemiah through all of these examples is a great model for how to deal with drift once you're aware of it. And and so it's this. um, Drift away from God, like I've said, happens in little increments. It's never a big move. It's, It's a little move and then a little move and then a little move and a little move. And the next thing you know, you're way over here. So, so. This, I don't mean this politically, I just mean this because I just said over here. So, so moves to the right or, or drift away from center happens little by little. Moves back to God's calling are huge, sweeping moves. So, so when you become aware of something where you're like, man, I, I, I've slipped and I've gotten away and I don't know how these things happen, but now I'm over here. I need to get back. You don't do that by going, so now I'm going to start with a little bit right here. Maybe by next week I'll go to church a little bit more often. Then I'm going to pray a little more. No, it is repentance and whoom movements over here. And you're going to see this with Nehemiah. So he comes back and he sees, here's this guy who has been opposed to the church who has a bedroom in God's house. What does he do? All right, dude, look, you're not supposed to be in here. So here, I'm going to give you 30 days. 
30-day eviction notice, and we're going to put a plan together, and we're going to take you over to HUD, and we'll help you get some appointments, and we're going to work on this stuff, but slowly but surely, we're going to work you out of here. No, he's grabbing furniture and chucking it out in the lawn. This, you will see him do this to some shocking degrees as we go through these. Um, but So this is the idea. Four areas we're going to see in our text that we can drift away from God's program for the church, um, but we're going to see that when those things come up, the response to such drift, when we're aware of it, is boom, big sweeping moves to come back to center. Does that make sense? So the first of them is, is that we have a tendency over a period of time to relax in our seriousness with regards to holiness. Let's see what the second one is. Let's look at Nehemiah 13, verses 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Matania, maybe. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So now, this is an awkward one. I never like teaching these kind of things, and so... Um, it could really come off as self-serving in a lot of ways, but, but hopefully we can kind of bring this in around where it don't. So give me some grace. I'm going to just trust, especially those of you that know me for a while, that maybe I have enough equity that you trust my heart in this. But, but here's the second one. The second way that we are prone to drift is over a period of time, we can drift away from, God, from, or excuse me, from um, a, a submission and respect to godly biblical authority. We can drift away from submission and respect to godly biblical authority. So there are some things at play in the culture here in Israel at this time that are also at play in many cases in our own culture and in our own history um, that can make this really easy to happen. The first is you can have a culture that places little to no value on authority in general. So think about Israel's history at this time. What's authority looked like for them in their lifetime up to this point? It's been brutal. It's been exile, it's been slavery, it's been oppression. It's not been their own nation and their own authority. It's been authority that was pushed on them by outside influences. So there's this natural tendency to push back. It's sort of this built-in revolt against authority because of what their existence has been. It's kind of a you're not the boss of me attitude. And we have this too, especially here in America. Um, all of us have experienced or expressed it at one point. And if you're thinking, no, I haven't, yes, you have. You ever remember when you're growing up going, you're not my mom? Remember that one? You're not my dad. You're not the boss of me. Like we all in us have a certain prideful part of us that wants to push back against authority in general. And this is no one tells me what to do. You don't tell me what to do. And the second thing that kind of is at play here as well is a complete biblical ignorance over what God's plan for them was in the first place. Uh, and and this, this same thing applies to the church in many ways today. Just a complete misunderstanding of what 
not only, not only the church in its mission is to be, but what the purpose of authority and, and positions, whether they be pastors, elders, deacons, and what their role is within the church. A complete biblical ignorance over those things, many, in, in many cases because of really bad examples of that in the past, just as Israel has experienced. So let me give you an example. Um, in the book of Hebrews, there's a verse that no one has ever used as the verse, their life verse, or the verse that they are using to decide which church they will attend. It's an important verse, and because it's a biblical verse, it is the inerrant word of God. It's truth. But I've never heard anyone at any church I've ever served on or been a part of heard anyone say, this is why I've chosen this church. And so I'm, I'm going to break it down in three little steps. I just want to walk you guys through it. And, and as you're hearing this, there might be parts of you that you go, oh, I don't, I don't like the way that that feels. It, it, it may be something that God's word might even be um, uh, 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 calling us out on, our own drifting. It might be a good um, litmus test to kind of see where we are, if you will. But in Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. And it's talking to the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, I have never heard anyone quote that verse to me in regard to their relationship with deacons, elders, teachers, anyone in the church. I've hardly ever heard that verse quoted ever, period. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Because in our culture especially, the vast majority of people in the culture out there are not looking for churches that have a leadership in place that they feel they can submit to. They're looking for a leadership or people in positions in the church that will submit to them, that will do what they need, that will provide what they want, that will make sure that they serve them in all these different areas. Now, is it the role of the leadership of your church to serve? Absolutely. Is it the call of the people going to the church to look to be served? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Philippians tells us what? Have this mind in you that was in Christ. Consider others better than yourselves, humbling yourself to serve others. That's the call to every Christian, no matter what position they're in. And so in Hebrews, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. But he's not done. He continues, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So here you have in Israel this leadership structure that's been put in place by God through Nehemiah and the people have completely disregarded it and backed away. They're not bringing the tithes anymore. The priests have no more influence, no more responsibility with the people and they're having to go out and get jobs because they can't even afford to live anymore. No one is submitted to or supporting the work of God through the church, if you will, the temple at that time. And so here, it would be really easy to say, Jeff, you're, you're talking about this because it's self-serving. You're, you're saying that if you do this, you're, you're looking for people that just will do what you want them to do. It's your way of building up your own leadership and your own power in the church and all this kind of stuff. It'd be really easy for someone to hear what we're looking at in this verse and make that statement. Why? Because it happens all the time, right? Happens all the time. One of the most influential churches in our day and age, Mars Hill, Seattle, was a massively important influence throughout the nation, even the world. And because of power grabs, pride, power struggles, that church in one year went from 15,000 people and probably the most influential Protestant church in the country to doesn't even exist anymore. Gone. No more Mars Hill, period. Period. 
So it happens all the time. But for the leader who instead of looking at the church as a vessel by which he can get people under him and can find more control and more power, for the leader who really understands God's call for his life in leadership, he understands that the next part of this verse is a massive, terrifying reality. Because it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give account. So for me, on that day when we all move into heaven, whether it's because Jesus comes back or we die and we're in heaven, however it ends up working, on that day, most of you that aren't in positions of leadership, Sam, this doesn't count for you, Brent, this doesn't count for you, you know, you guys in leadership, doesn't count for you. But for the rest of you, your experience standing before God and giving an account of the things that God has done in your life, the things that God has blessed you, is going to be different than mine will. Because I will literally stand before the king of kings and be held accountable for am I shepherding over the hearts and souls of the people at Heritage Christian Fellowship. That is terrifying to think about. And leaders, you should think about that regularly. That is a terrifying reality. Have our motives always been pure? Absolutely not. We're fallen humans like anyone else. Have we ever had our egos stroked by things and done things so that we feel good about ourselves? Absolutely we have. Any pastor or any leader in any position, church or not, that says otherwise is lying. That is a terrifying thing to think that one day I will stand before God and have to give account for how I'm shepherding the people of this church. But it's real. It's absolutely real. And then he goes on. He says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. And, and this is what he's saying. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. He, here's what he's saying. Pastors, you are responsible for shepherding the hearts and souls of the people in your congregation, and you will be held accountable by God for that. And then he says, people... It doesn't do you any good to beat your leaders down into submission, to demand or question or frustrate or, or feel like your job is to be the constant watchdog and to just beat them into submission to the point that every time they see you going or coming towards them, it's not a joy that they see you coming, but they have, oh, here he comes again. Here, I'm going to pick on Steve because I, I know Steve and you're a joy when you come walking. But, but for Steve to go, all right, I'm in this church, this is my church, and I'm tithing, and Jeff, I pay your salary, so I, here's what I think, and to, to constantly beat down and annoy and frustrate and suck the life out of the leadership, to critique and nitpick every little thing that happens, to the point that every time I see Steve coming, it's not a joy for me to serve him anymore, it's a, oh, what's this going to be? That, that does not benefit the people of God. You go, well, Jeff, it sounds like you're just writing a blank check, that you're saying that the people of God should write a blank check to the leadership of the church. No, when you understand this in the way that it's supposed to be, this is just like marriage. Marriage has been viewed as 
The man is the one who has the authority and women are to submit and women go, are you kidding me? That's a blank check of authority given to my husband and I just have to deal with this and keep my mouth shut? I'll never be happy. Who knows what he's gonna do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in many cases, that's true because that has been so abused. But it's not what the word says. And it's not God's intent. It's a picture of absolute, total, mutual submission. That is, the people of God are submitted to the leadership that God puts into place. The leadership is submitted to the needs and spiritual well-being of the people, and all of which are submitted to the headship, who is not me as pastor of the church, but is Jesus Christ himself. And so there's this constant serving and submission from one another. That is what is desired. And so the idea, and I've seen this go in so many places, we have seen examples of churches that pride and things have taken them awry, right? We've all seen that, amen, right? But you guys gotta know, the burnout rate for leaders in pastoral ministry is astronomical, astronomical. It's something like average pastor, senior pastor lasts less than five years and goes back to doing work somewhere else. Now, for some of them, that's good attrition. Some of them should have never been pastors in the first place, and so when they walk out, it's good, that's good. God bless you. You weren't called to this. This isn't what you should have been doing anyway, or you're in it for wrong motives, or maybe, God forbid, you are that pastor who's trying to power grab, and so if that implodes and you're shown the door, praise God. God's purged his church, right? Thin the herd. That's fine. But, but there's others I've talked to before that I've heard literally say, pastoral ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. Now, let's, let's disclaimer that. Sometimes that is an indicator of you got in this for the wrong reasons. Um, th- th- I've seen people, and I've, I've been this way myself many times, and I think any pastor or leader or elder or, or teacher has, where you can get frustrated by those that you're leading because they're not as mature as you think they ought to be and forget the fact that God put you as an instrument or an agent of maturation into their life. So you want sheep that are all fixed, and you're frustrated that your sheep aren't awesome. That is not what pastoral ministry looks like. Um, I love how Matt Chandler puts it. You are not in the middle of the green fields with the healthy sheep that are just cuddling and petting. Pastoral ministry and leadership in the church tends to be on the fringe with the ones that bite. That's just the reality of it. You are encouraging and teaching and nurturing people into health and maturity. That's the call of the pastor and leader. So there needs to be an understanding of that. But at the same time, too, there have been, for for every example where you've seen a bully pastor um, abuse a congregation, there are other places where abusive leadership structures or congregations have burned out well-meaning men of God who just desire to follow God as well. It happens. You know why? We're all sinners. We're all prideful. All of us. And what God has put into place is a mutually submissive process where no one should have the freedom to just grow in their own pride and power. Everyone is submitted on some level or another. It's better than the checks and balance system that has ever been put in place by our own government. And this is the idea. So the idea that God has created within the church is this. Find a church, join it, stay there. Until you can't possibly stay anymore, stay there. The, the phrase that I've heard before is quit dating the church. Now, now listen, 
If that means you're bouncing around and you're not sure about this one and you're going somewhere else to find that one to join, by all means, do it. But I am with, I cannot tell you how much I believe this. I have studied this. I have talked to other pastors, teachers. I am convinced this is God's will. That we find a congregation of believers and you join and you say, this is my church. And I'm gonna be known here. And I'm gonna serve here. I'm gonna know others here. I'm gonna grow. I'm gonna allow that guy to help me mature. I'm not gonna be prideful enough to think that I'm in a position where I don't need any more help. And we have this proclivity. Especially as we've grown in our knowledge over the years. You can get to a point where you start to feel like, he doesn't really have anything to teach me anymore, or that elder doesn't really have anything to share with me anymore, and I, I feel like I know more than him anyway. And that can be a really toxic place because you can elevate yourself in a position of pride to a place that you were never designed to be. But instead, God desires, think of it this way. God has given us, the world, two institutions to be physical, visible pictures of the gospel. Marriage and the church. That's the two biblically ordained examples of the gospel that people in the world out there should be able to look at and go, that's different than what I see everywhere else, marriage and the church. And we would never go to someone in marriage and go, you know what, you should be with him. But when things start to get a little bit rocky, just bail. There's so many other guys around here. Just go find a different guy. That's probably not the one you were supposed to be at in the first place. Just bail. But one of the drawbacks, though, we are blessed. People were asking me, like, what's Medford like? Um, in fact, there's a guy who was, uh, emailed me just this week, looking to move to Medford and, and uh, was, was wanting to know, what is the Bible or church culture in Southern Oregon like? And I told him, I was like, there's a lot of great churches in Southern Oregon to choose from. And that's a good thing. Um, in, in, in the cultures in the past, it was like, it wasn't First Church of Corinth and Second Church of Corinth and First Presbyterian of Corinth and, uh, you know, Church of Christ in Corinth. There was none, it was just the church in Corinth. There were no other options, right? It was like looking for a restaurant and you live in, I don't know, Happy Camp. You got like, you're going to the grocery store and getting ramen noodles. That's pretty much it, right? So that's the idea. Like that was all there was. But, but now we live in a place particularly where there are churches everywhere, and that's good. We, we need more churches in Medford. But to go from church to church and go, I'll go here, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go here, it's always, it, I shouldn't say it's always, that's a really broad brush. There is such a consumeristic attitude that does exist among people in our valley. I'll go there because I like the worship. I'll go there because I like this. I'll go there because I like this. Rarely is it ever, I'm going to go to this church because there is a biblical teaching and authority that I can submit to, but yet I'm going to serve as well. We, we look at it like a restaurant. I, I like the Italian food here. I like the way they're bringing I don't like the service. Oh, my food was cold when it got here. I don't think I'm going to go anymore. What we do is we put ourselves in the position of the person eating food at the table in the restaurant. That's not where the Christian is in that picture. We're the waiter. And so we are supposed to find a church body, a body of believers that we can commit to, that we can serve, that we can learn from, a leadership that actually can grow as they lead us as well. And I'd be the first person to tell you I have not made stellar decisions across the board in everything. There's been 
all sorts of times where I have had to learn the hard way through bad choices and bad decisions and rough decisions and all sorts of things like that. And by God's grace, I hope I have grown some, but man, I got a lot of growing still to do. And so does everyone on our staff and every pastor, leader, teacher out there. I don't care if you're John Piper that's been ministering faithfully for 40 something years, he's got more growing. He's not like Jesus yet, amen? He's not. And so all of us are to be mutually submitted to one another so that we are all growing to be more like Jesus. So if you hear all this and you're like, Jeff is just angling to keep people here and he doesn't want anyone to leave and he's just fighting for his own power and all that kind of stuff, then I, I, I assure you that's not my heart. Um, but, but maybe this just isn't the church that, that you're like, that's the one that I want to commit to. But I, I genuinely believe the, the, we, we, we end fellowship way too easily, way too easily. And we rob ourselves of growth, we rob the church of growth, and we destroy a beautiful picture of the gospel that the world out there needs to see. That, man, we can fight over stuff and still hug in the name of Christ at the end. We need more of that. Do you realize how polarizing this world has come, become? It's unbelievable. Donald Trump leads the polls? Seriously? Sorry, that's political. We're not allowed to say that, are we? Let's just move on. So, so that's the second one. So the first one is that we have a tendency to relax over a period of time with regards to our seriousness and holiness. The second one, drift away from godly biblical authority. The third one, Nehemiah 13. We've got to pick up the pace here. There's not a clock in here. I don't... Oh, gosh, we really got to hurry. In those days, I saw Judah, in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? You guys see what Nehemiah is saying there? Nehemiah is going to reach back a thousand years to say, we've been through this before. This is something we've been through before. Shouldn't we know better? And now here we are thousands of years after Nehemiah reaching back to Nehemiah going, we've been through this before. <laughs> we should understand these things because these are natural proclivities that the church has always had. So, in, he goes on, now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. And this is awesome. So talking about, again, Huge moves to the left or huge moves back to center. So here's what's going on. People are profaning the Sabbath, this day of rest. They're taking advantage of it and opening up markets, especially in a time when no other markets would be open. And so they're doing it here in the city in order to profit instead of honoring the Sabbath that's been instituted. And so he's like, we're not doing this anymore. Sabbath's coming, lock all the gates, shut all the doors. And so the people come, the gates are locked, and they're like, well, we'll just set up shop right out here outside the gates. So they start stacking up. Nehemiah sees this, and look what he says. Why do you lodge outside the walls? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I'm coming out. 
I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to drag you out of there myself. There, there's a picture of Jesus in that, um, if you know the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, but from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So let's consider this for just a second. The natural proclivity would be, this is about turning church into a profit-making organization. But let's give the average church the benefit of the doubt. We've been hard on church so far. Let's give the church the benefit of the doubt. And let's look at it from a different perspective. And that's regarding the Sabbath. There's a huge disconnect involving the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath originally? In the Sabbath, the institution of the Sabbath, God comes, he creates everything. He says, men, this is what you're to do. Women, this is what you're going to do. You're gonna work, you're gonna till, you're gonna, you're gonna create society, you're gonna subdue the earth, you're gonna fill it, you're gonna do, do, do all this stuff. And then the Sabbath comes and he says what? Don't do anything, just be. Just be. Don't do anything, just rest and be. So the, the third proclivity is this. We fail in resting and being and drift back to doing. This is the book of Galatians. This is the book of Galatians. We have a tendency to go back away from resting in the work of the gospel and drift back into, I've got to do this, I've got to do. I need to do this to earn God's favor. I've got to do this, I've got to work, I've got stuff to do all the time. And in the Sabbath, God comes to his people, the church, and he says, just stop and just be, just rest, be who you are in Christ, be like me, rest because I rested, you are my children, just be, and you go, but man, there's stuff I have to do, like I can't just make that my emphasis as a Christian, there's stuff I got to do, well, like what, well, I got to quit cussing, probably a good idea, um, probably something you, you, I don't think you want to be known for that. Might be something if you want to increase your witness in the world out there, probably a good idea. But your quitting cussing has nothing to do with who you are before God and your identity in Christ. And the Sabbath was there as a picture for us to rest in him. Well, I, I got to end this pornography habit. You definitely need to end that pornography habit. But you are not saved because you stop looking at pornography. That's not, has no bearing on whether God loves you or looks at you or approves of you at all, none. Important to do, not a part of your identity in Christ. Or I have a drug or alcohol problem or whatever the case may be, but none of those things will make God love you anymore or earn you salvation anymore. We achieve identity as believers in Christ, or I should say as children of God forgiven of our sins, not because of anything we do, but because we rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. That's it. And our proclivity is to get saved by that and then to drift back into, but I gotta, but I gotta, but I gotta. There's wisdom in those things, but you don't gotta. It's been done. And on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sad. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Amen? So we, we have a tendency to drift from that. And then finally, verse 23. And in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath. We, will, we have not instituted this in church discipline at Heritage. Just so you know, there is a no hair pulling policy here. 
Um, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Here he is again. Haven't we seen this before? Don't we realize this yet? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of those sons of Jehoiadai, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. We've heard about him. He was a big opposition of Israel. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites, and thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood, them the wood offering at appointed times and for first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. See the weird ending? That's the end of Nehemiah. He grabbed some people by their hair, drug them out, and said, on to Esther. That's the end of Nehemiah. It's kind of a bummer. But this is the reality. Fourth way we are prone to drift. We gotta do it quick. We have a tendency to be short-sighted and lazy about the things of God. Short-sighted and lazy about the things of God. Now, this is a passage, interestingly enough, that used to be used to try to invalidate interracial marriage. This is not about interracial marriage. This is not about nationalities. This is about introducing cultures, influence, and people into your life and your family's life who are diametrically opposed to the things of God. That's what this is about. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's in intermarriage going on. These people are growing up and marrying people from other cultures. Who does God call out for this? Who does God call out? Does he call out the people getting married? No. He calls out the parents. What are you doing? Why are your children intermarrying? Why are you allowing this to happen? He's calling out parents for this, not the children themselves. So what does this teach us? We have a proclivity to allow the church, for example, well, I'll let the church raise my children in the things of God. I'll let the Christian school raise my children in the things of God. But, but I... I've done my, my duty as a Christian parent by making sure they go to Sunday school, making sure they go to church camp, making sure they go to the Christian schools. Other than that, I'm out. But I got bad news for you. In that day, when you stand before God and give account for all the things that God has blessed you with, he is not gonna call the staff of Cascade Christian High School up to say, how have you ministered the gospel to his children? He's gonna call you. He's gonna call us as parents of our own Children, this is God's plan. Throughout the scriptures, it is the parent's responsibility to teach the precepts of God to his people. And we have a tendency to just be lazy about these mandates, whether it be parenting or even other things that you could bring into place. And we see this, by the way. We have seen a sharp decline over the years in the number of children who are reaching junior high and high school and having even basic understandings sometimes with regards to the, just the basic precepts of the Christian faith. We see this all the time. Brent and Jeremy and the guys are actually right now putting together, what do you call this thing that you're doing? Really loud. Heritage Milestones, where they're actually putting together a program by which 
not us doing the work to teach your children about this, but where we are coming alongside parents in a way we've never done before, in a very specific and structured way to help you be the one who shepherds and pastors your children through specific markers in life, guidestones going through their life and development as Christians so that they are learning and growing in the grace of God. Um, but that takes work. That means you miss a ball game once in a while. That means you don't get to sleep in maybe, or there's things you have to give up because you are called to shepherd your family, and that takes work. But we tend to be short-sighted and lazy. We, we tend to go, I've got many, many years left with my kid. They're 